one of the one of the things that you know as a priest is that in my world, um, generational differences are very real among priests, and the last generation of priests in general are very good men. But like when my generation, when we go on a retreat, that means silence. It means you don't talk. You are in total silence. You pray. That's what you do. And it was just so funny because like we had all the older priests just like talked all week. And at meals, the tradition of the church this goes all the way back to like Saint Benedict. Um, at a meal time, what you do is you bring a book because Saint Benedict says. It's just so easy when you're assigned a retreat that basically just you're obsessed with your food. You're like, oh, I love you, food. Right? I've missed you. Um, and so what you do is you bring a book to help you not to just kind of like obsess about your food. So at every meal, I have a book. And the way that this retreat worked, sorry, this has nothing to do with anything. Um, but on one side of the, we had like a, Retreat center, and there's a big kind of like central room where you have meals. And on one side of the room was kind of like guys who were going to talk more, and the other side is guys who want to be silent. So I was on the silent side. And I'm sitting there with my book. I'm very clearly not sitting with anyone else, just trying to be silent. And really nice priests who I just think are a little absent minded. This one priest, the Shire Nameless, who actually is just a wonderful priest. But he just came and sat like right across from me. He's like, Brian, how are you? And I'm like, I'm like, how do I not be a jerk? And my dad's just like, put your book down, be nice. So I just, anyway. I don't know why I tell that story. Welcome back to RCIA. <laughs> um, let's pray and then we'll kind of jump in, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, today on the... Feast of St. Simon and Jude. Lord, we pray for their intercession. We ask for their intercession. We ask that we would have the faith that they have, uh, the courage to give our lives for what is true and good. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together. I want to pray in a special way for my, my cousin Kaylee. Uh, pray also for Father Jason Wunsch, whose birthday is today. Um, and Jesus, just anyone here tonight, all of us, Lord, help us to leave behind what is behind us. Help us open to be open and to enter into what you have for us tonight. Um, we'll give our time to you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How's Father Mike? Good. Isn't he fun? Totally crazy. Different flavor. He's great. Love him. Um, Father Mike and I, we started our community together. He's been a friend of mine for... Gosh, 15 years probably. Um, did he have his mohawk last week? He started it uh, recently. I can't, I like his, look. His, his head was shaved more yeah. on the side. Because there you go, so he did. He didn't quite look like the same Father Mike who was here this morning. Right? So that's the start of the mohawk. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Not surprising. Um, you need a chair. He's getting them, okay. That's what men are for. Okay. Um, so tonight, we've got a lot of ground to cover as always. So tonight, I want to start, um, I don't know if it was um, Anya or if it was Stephanie, who told me we had a question that came in online that she wanted me to answer. 
Um, and it's just a great question. So we're going to start with that. And then we're going to, I'm going to ask you guys if you have any questions or follow-up from last week. And then hopefully we'll make some great progress tonight. So the question someone sent in, I don't know if it's an email or just on Facebook or what, uh, here it is. So the question is, and this is about the Pope Francis thing came up, and I think Father Mike talked about that a little bit. Um, here's the question is, if the Catholic Church believes in the separation of church and state, then why do they feel the need to impose their religious belief on outlawing same-sex marriage? How is same-sex marriage hurting the general population? The Catholic Church doesn't have to recognize same-sex marriage as legitimate, but why impose Catholic doctrine on people that don't share the same religious belief, especially since the church believes in separation of church and state? It's a great question. So tonight, what we're not going to do, because we will get to this, but it's got to be down the road. Down the road, we will talk about why the church thinks the way it does about same-sex marriage, but that's not what this question was about. The, the question here, if you heard it right, <clears throat> the question is about, okay, well, Catholics believe that marriage is only between one man and one woman, which is true, but other people don't. So, so why should the church, and the, the question, and I, I, whoever wrote this, I think it was Mary Rogers, just kidding, that's my assistant. Um, whoever wrote this, you use the word, and I'm, I'm just being nitpicky, but they use the word impose. Why is the church imposing its view on secular society? It's a really good question. So I'm going to try and tackle this, and try to do it quickly. We all know that really won't happen. Right? So if you want to read about this, we're going to talk about this more in depth later on in class, because probably for like 90% of you in this room, this is a very important question. And so we will treat it in detail and in depth. Um, and we'll do it compassionately, and we'll do it intelligently, I hope, building myself up too much. Um, so, so a couple of, of just kind of points here. First one is this, is that, that the way this question was phrased with that word imposition, I just want to start with that. Why would the church impose this on other people? Um, the Catholic position is exactly the opposite. So the, the case that legalized gay marriage, does anybody know what it's called? Supreme Court case? Yes, you do. Okay. It was, it's Obergefell. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Obergefell. So that happened right when I became pastor here in uh, 2015. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and if you haven't read the Supreme Court ruling and the dissent, it's really worth reading. But to start off with tonight, what I want to say is like, whoever wrote this question said, why is the church imposing its view on other people? I would argue, and I actually just think this is not an argument, I just think this, this is the fact. The church didn't impose this. Um, the church stood up for what all civilizations in all of human history Christian, non-Christian, atheist, pagan, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, you name it, all of humans in all of history, up until about uh, 2010, I think it is, all of them believe this. All of human history. And in Obergefell, 
if you actually read the and read the, the case and you follow what happened, both sides admitted that. And so <clears throat> not only when, when the church thinks, and we'll get to the, the more important point I'll get to in a second, but this isn't a, the main point is this is not a Catholic point, actually. Um, but the imposition, and I should finish that point, the imposition from a Christian perspective is that we should have that discussion. It's a great discussion. We should have it. But the Christian point is that all of human history everywhere has said marriage is this. And when we get to the question about why we think the way we do about marriage, we're going to ask a very simple question. And the question is, what is marriage? That's the question we'll ask when we get there. All of human history, as far as we know, we literally have no evidence anywhere that any civilization in all of human history ever thought there could be such a thing as gay marriage. Ever. Until about 2010. First time in all of human history. There is not a shred of evidence in any civilization anywhere. There is now, some people are probably thinking right now, well, Father Brian, there is homosexuality. That is true. That's absolutely true. That, that was very prevalent in Greece, in ancient Rome, lots of other places. But no one ever thought it was the same thing as marriage. Ever. So the Catholic perspective is not that, you know, everybody's just fine. Everybody just do your thing. Everyone believes in gay marriage. But then the Catholic Church made this big deal and said, we don't like gay people. We're going to impose this on them. That's not what happened. All of human history, there is a literal, this happens almost on no issue in human history. There is a literal consensus in human history on this. Of all people everywhere, Christians, non-Christians again, said it everywhere. The Catholic point is that that was there for a reason. So we don't think that we impose this. The church didn't say, hey, we're going to force this down everybody's throat. The second point is much more important. The second point is that the Catholic Church might agree with civil society on certain things, um, but that doesn't make it a religious point. And, and this, is the, this is the major point, is if, you, if we live in a culture like you and I live in, where not everyone believes the same thing, right? Um, we live in a uh, diverse culture where people think all kinds of different things. And so what the, what the Catholic Church believes, but again, I just think, I don't know how you argue against this. Pope Benedict said this in a very famous address called the Regensburg Address, and he got like lit up in the news for this, and I literally don't know how you argue against it. It just seems so plainly obvious to me. But what he says is that when you live in a culture where not everyone believes the same thing, there, you have to have a playing field of some kind. So if, if you're a Muslim and you're an atheist and you're a Hindu and whatever, we don't, I don't ever go up to a Muslim and if, if and this is, a, this is an important point, if a Muslim or an atheist or a Buddhist comes to me and says, um, Father Brian, why do you believe X, Y, or Z? What I don't do is say, <laughs> you idiot, have you read Matthew 17? I never say that, ever. Because I know that this book is not an authority for that person. Same way if, if a Muslim comes up to me and says, you have to believe that Muhammad is the prophet, and I say, well, tell me why. 
And they say, well, the Quran says it in these 18 places. Not to be rude towards Muslims, but I don't care what the Quran says. The Quran is not an authority for me. So, so how do we have a conversation? How do we talk about what's true and what's not true? And the Catholic Church believes in this thing called reason. And we believe that all human beings have it. And so the Catholic Church believes that murder is wrong. We teach that. It's one of the commandments. It's the fifth commandment. We also don't think that's a Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine agrees with that, right? But you don't have to be a Christian to believe that killing's wrong. Does that make sense? Thank you for those of you who are nodding. The rest of you, I'm judging you in my heart. Right? Like, so if someone said, hey, you just believe that killing is bad because, you know, uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, being pressed here, I know my Bible. Um, <laughs> Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 say you shall not kill. Why are you imposing your belief on me? No one says that. Why don't they say that? Because you shall not kill is something everyone can know with their mind. The, the Catholic, and, and again, the, the Catholic argument about same-sex marriage is not, it is not about faith. It's about reason. And so in a civil society, so Pope Benedict says this, the church agrees, and then the, this email said that, there are certain things that you can only know by faith. And those things should never be imposed as laws by a civil society. So if our government, if we elected a Catholic president, um, I'm just going to bite my tongue. Yeah. Um, if we elected a Catholic president and the Catholic president came out and said, um, we're going to make a law that everyone has to believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's a horrible idea. Because you can only know that, it's only possible to know that through faith. The church's teaching on same-sex marriage, we believe, and again, I think the record, and we'll talk about this in depth when we talk about this topic, it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of reason. And so for Catholics, <clears throat> when people say you're a Catholic, so you shouldn't bring this to the public square, most of the time, and I, I'm going to, the person who wrote this, I am sure this is not the case, but most of the time when people tell Catholics they can't talk about this, it's a sign they just want you to shut up. Um, when you read intelligent Catholics about this, I, and we'll, we will do this, we will do it in detail, and we'll talk about how people who have same sex attraction belong in the church, they are loved by God. They might be great saints, um, but the church's teaching on sexual acts between human beings is not grounded just in what God teaches, but in human rationality. Okay, any pushback? It's fine if you have it, by the way, yeah. So if we took the word marriage away from it, what would the Catholic Church think about civil unions? So, we're, yeah, so what's the harm? That was in that question, and I'll give a quick answer to this. I'll try to. Um, so society, like, here, here's the quick answer for this. When you, are you guys married yet? No. Okay. So are you going to be? 
Right now, on the spot, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, proposal? <laughs> Every year we need three proposals in RCIA, so just kidding. Um, here, here's, here's the reason. So we'll, we'll talk about this again more in depth down the road, but here, here's the answer to that. So the government, what's the role of the government to the people? So this, another way of asking this, when you get married, why do you have to go to a courthouse and get a legal document? And why does the government give you tax breaks? So here's, here's I, I believe, the really rational way of thinking about this is if you are thinking with your mind and not just your feelings, and, and I, I don't want to go too deep because we could spend all night on this, um, but if you're thinking and not just feeling, and by the way, I will just tell you, I have family members who I love very, very much who have same-sex attraction, so this is not just an abstract idea for me. But whenever this topic comes up, because it's so powerful for all of us right now, I'm asking you to think and not just feel. Um, so when you get married, you go down, you get a legal document. The government recognizes that you're married, and there are certain benefits to that. Now here's a question. Why should the government care if you two get married? Because it promotes a healthy society of kids, of uh, the society growing through having kids, kids being raised in a structured family where they have a mother and father, and they, they can be raised in a, um, in a household that will hopefully bring them up to be good citizens. Right. Yeah, so <clears throat> you're supposed to give the wrong answer, mm -hmm. by the way, if you haven't learned that yet. <laughs> that's, that's the right answer. So... And here's, here's the comparison to break that down a little bit, is that I have friends in my life, so, so the best thinkers, the people who are really pro-gay marriage, who have won in our country, right? They won. Um, and I, I really think here, that I'm not picking on people who don't know what they're talking about. We're talking about the, the, the most powerful intellectual thinkers in this area. When they say, when they answer the question, what is marriage? They say marriage is your number one relationship. They say it's that person in your life that is the most important to you. So imagine there's two people. They love each other a ton. That's the most, for both of them, it's the most important relationship. Right? Um, if one person goes to the hospital, they want to be the first one there. Right? Um, they're in each other's wills. They go on vacation together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you're probably thinking these are two like, same-sex people who are, have a romantic relationship. What if it's two brothers? The definition that says marriage is your number one person you care most about, if you use the definition that is the most um, vigorously argued for by intellectuals for pro-gay, the pro-gay movement, it, is, it becomes impossible to distinguish between a marriage and a close friendship. Impossible. It also, and, and, and the point here is that why should the government care? The reason the government cares is what he said, is that all of us, like, I do not have same-sex attraction. As I joke about it, I hope this isn't offensive. I frequently wish women were less attractive. 
because I'm celibate and it'd be easier if women were less attractive. Um, I have an interest in your marriage. I have an interest in your marriage, and I will never be married. Because the way, if you believe in God or you don't, if you're just an atheist, you could just say the way nature works, biologically, is that a child is a product of a one flesh union of a man and a woman. Um, and we're going to talk in depth about this, but <clears throat> social science is not a good thing to generally base arguments on, and, I, and the Catholic Church's argument is not based on it. It's based on the way nature works, and well, again, this is, these are deep waters, we're going to get to that, but here's just a quick shortcut. Um, they're basically, like, like when you hear on the news, you'll hear different studies say that children raised in same-sex parent households fare the same as those in others. There has never been a class A study. So in social science, right, there's different levels of studies. There are studies that are <clears throat> based on much smaller groups. Those are less dependable. There are ones based on much larger groups. There are ones that have controls in place to make sure that you're not you know, running into errors that can skew the results. There has never once been a study that's a class A study that did not show that a kid needs a mom and a dad. Never been one. And that's why the government cares. The reason the government cares is that, that <clears throat> and um, there's that old phrase, they used to say it was Abraham Lincoln, but I think he actually never said it, is that as a family goes, so goes society, right? I'm getting old, I'm 40 now, and I'm starting to say things like, ah, oh, these damn kids, <laughs> kids today, right? Society, all society is is people. And um, not just in America, not just in the modern world, but and not just Catholics, not just Christians, but basically the overwhelming majority of humans in history have said the most important thing you can do for society is to raise children well. Um, and so the government, we haven't even answered, and this is way deeper than I wanted to go, the reason the government makes you get a certificate and the reason it gives you a tax break, and what, what, the, what happened with gay marriage was people argued, they said, the government is persecuting me because it doesn't recognize my love. And I'm going to try not to cuss here. Um, the government does not care who you love. I don't want the government to care who I love. I don't want the government to be involved in the people I love or don't love. And the government does not affirm my life by saying my friendship with my best friends is legitimate or not. I, I think that's an insane argument. The only reason the government cares about marriage is because it cares about children. That's it. And if you study this, which I've studied it extensively, if you study this, that's the only reason governments in all of history have gotten involved in this. The government doesn't care about your feelings. The government doesn't care about affirming your love for someone. The government gives you a tax break because it, the children are the future of the society. And has a vested interest in that. So, so Catholics care about it because of that. Yeah. As the Chinese have found out. I don't know. Tell me about that. I don't know. Well, remember when they went to one kid? Yeah. They were like, oh gosh, that's that's a problem. Now it's kind of like, you need to have more kids to keep the economy and the society going. Right. <clears throat> yeah. The, the Chinese government had that one-child policy. I don't know how long that lasted, but long time. Long time. Long time. So most of the female child being killed. Yeah. Exactly. And then yeah. So. 
Okay, that was way deeper than I want to go. Can we move on? Can I ask any other questions from things from last week? I promise you we will treat gay marriage and same-sex attraction in depth. And like I said, like there are people very close to me in my life who struggle with this, who I love very, very much. And we'll do it with compassion and we'll talk, but I want you, when we get to that, I want you to think about it and not just feel. Um, and we think it's, I don't know, we'll, we'll, so we'll, we'll treat it in detail. Any other questions before we dive into our topic tonight, which we might never get to, but we'll find out. <laughs> so, if this person here wants to clarify this question, but it's about Matthew 7, 18, yep. and how many want to say, <laughs> I'm butchering the, the verse of the Bible. So Matthew 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if 13. I was hoping I could fool you into thinking I did. Dang it. Well, um, Okay, so here's, here's Matthew 7, 13. So, <clears throat> Matthew 7, 13. So, the context here, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is Jesus' most important sermon, homily, you ever want, teaching moment in the entire gospel, um, when he teaches with words, at least. Um, and that's called the Sermon on the Mount. So, between chapter 5 and chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel, he sits on a mountain in Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, when we go there, you'll love it. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places in Israel. Um, and you're like, did I sign up for a trip? Um, I always just say that. We have to go to the Holy Land someday. But anyway, <clears throat> so that's where Jesus is at. And it's kind of like the Magna Carta of Christian day-by-day -day life. So here's what Jesus says. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So this is the, the wide and the narrow ways. Um, this is rooted, um, this is what New Testament scholars will tell you, is that there's a lot of kind of wisdom sayings in these sections of the Gospels. So what this is rooted in, and whoever asked this, I'd encourage you and all of you, this is rooted in Israel's tradition that there's two ways to live your life. Um, this goes back to Deuteronomy 28 through 30, where God offers blessings and curses to Israel. And he says to them, he says, Choose life that you may live. Obey the Lord your God. You will live in the land. You will find blessing. You will find life. You will be happy. But if you disobey, you will go and you will leave the land. You'll be cast into exile. We might get into that tonight. I'm excited about that. Um, you will find death and separation and curse um, that's, that's Deuteronomy, I think that's 28 is where that exact passage is. I'm not going to look at it. It's 28 through 30. It's either 28 or 30. Um, but that's Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy, think of it this way, Deuteronomy is just picking up on what happened to Adam and Eve. God gives Adam and Eve, and he says, here's a law, live by it. They're in the Garden of Eden. He says, if you, if you eat of the fruit, if you eat of the fruit, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, right, you will die. And you'll be cast out of the garden, which is what happens, which is exactly what he says in Deuteronomy 28. Um, and it's easier. But if you obey, you'll find life and joy 
You'll find you'll live in the land, right? They would have stayed in Eden. Um, so that this passage picks up on that. A lot of people use this passage. So when people ask Jesus, and you'll learn a little bit about me, you might get a different answer from a different priest on this one. A lot of people say, okay, Father Brian, how many people are going to heaven? Anybody know? I almost thought that was an answer. I was like, come on. 144,000. Only the Catholics. Only the Catholics. No, that's not true. We don't believe that. That's an important question, by the way. We'll get to that. Uh, yeah. When he says many, does he mean more than half and few meaning less than half? No, I, I would argue really against that. So a couple of things here. So the Greek word for many is the same word Jesus uses at the Last Supper. Um, and he uses it lots of times. It's a common word. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, whenever someone asks him, he doesn't answer the question. It's really frustrating. Right? So the, the Greek word is polus. Um, much or many. Polus and it's conjugated pole and polon. So that word for many, much or many, also means, and you can only tell by trying to read the context, there's no way to know otherwise, it can also mean all. Now here in this context, it seems pretty clear to you it means many. Right, those who enter by it will be many. Versus few. Right? If you meant all, you probably wouldn't have said few. But here's, here's what I would say. This, what Jesus basically, people say, hey, how many people are going to be saved? What Jesus basically always says in the Gospels is, try really hard. So people will try to use this text and they'll say, oh, there's like pretty much everybody's going to hell. I am not the Catholic Church, but I don't believe that. And if you want a great passage, if that's the question behind the question on this one, if you want a, a passage that's like super optimistic, and there's tons of them, um, and I don't know. Anyone who tells you, if you hear a priest, a theologian say, I know how many people are in heaven, that's a lie. We do not know that. Only God knows. Um, we, and if you, they say, how many people are in hell? No one knows the answer to that. Only God knows. Um, a great passage, though, if you need some encouragement for this, is Romans chapter 5. And we're going to get to that, but I want to save it because I want to get to our topic. But that's, that might be tonight, it might be next class. Probably next class because we never get anywhere. <laughs> okay, anybody else? Do you guys need a break? No? Okay, give me, a, give me a show of hands. How many people want a break? This is peer pressure. We had it in class in seminary. Like a, a professor would be like, Okay, we're all done today, unless anybody has any questions. And I remember sitting in class going, and there's always this one guy who asks questions, and I'm like, if you ask a question, I will find you after class, and your life is over. <laughs> Violence in the seminary is a real thing. Okay. So I'll it quick. I asked it last week, because you had brought it up in um, the previous session about... Um, oh, so it's my fault. God type thing. Um, you probably gave an example of Yep. And I asked it last week because sort of the precedent or the, the argument that he was making is, well, we know because of Scripture and because of the church teaching 
Yep. And to your point you just made earlier about Muslims or Jews mm -hmm. making an argument based off the Bible or what the church says. Right. So like a non-believer or non-Christian is sort of yeah. irrelevant. So I was just curious if there's other examples so how do we so how do we know Jesus is God outside of Scripture? Yeah. And here's and here's what we're gonna get to. Um, it's a great question. Um, Father Mike's such an idiot. I mean, come on, I'm just kidding. I love him dearly. He's one of my best friends. Um, that's what you could. I would. You know, isn't it funny? Your best friends you say mean things, and people who you don't actually like are always nice to them. Do you ever do that? I'm like totally that way. Anyway, okay. So so what Scripture is. And hopefully Father Mike talked about this. I know we've talked about it briefly. Is that Catholics don't believe in Jesus because of Scripture. We believe in, in Jesus. What happened in the life of Christ, you could call it an event. And Scripture and tradition are what they are. Those are the two primary ones. There are other ones. What they are is they are witnesses. So, <clears throat> I agree with you. Like, you can't go to, I never go to a non-believer and say, let's read Mark chapter 2. I never do that. Now, but what an intelligent Christian, what we want to say is, this is a real historical event. Um, if, you, if you want to cast doubt on the event of the life of Jesus Christ, it's easier to cast doubt on the life of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle than it is on the life of Christ. We have far, far more historical evidence for Jesus' life. And what we want to say is, Scripture's a witness. You say, okay, well, I don't believe in that witness. Okay. Tradition, well, I don't really believe in the tradition of the church. That makes it a little hard. But, and one of the questions I have on my list, for, and I again, everything's going to be next week. Next week, um, one of my questions that we're going to hit on very hard is, what is faith? And how do you come to a place where you can say, I believe? We're going to talk a lot about that. Tonight's class is going to lead into that. There are other witnesses, though. And here's, here's my key point. Um, Christianity, and hear this guy, this is so important. Christianity is not something that I can put on the table and prove to you in a scientific way. C.S. Lewis has the best quote about this. Um, I don't know if I've given it to you yet. If I haven't, I will. I will regardless. C.S. Lewis says um, <clears throat> he never understood when Christians talked about growing in faith because he thought, he thought Christianity was just like either it's true or it's not. And if, I've, and if I believe the evidence, then it's true. So how could I grow in faith? And what he came to understand is that much like, and this is the way he phrases it, is he says, the most important things in life are not scientifically provable. The love that my wife has for me, which I don't have one, um, but Lewis says this, is not something I can scientifically prove. I, there, it doesn't mean there's not evidence. There's great evidence, actually. Um, but if, if Christianity were just evidence, math, biology, physics, we prove it, then Christianity, hear this, then faith would be the same thing as an intellectual conversion. Yeah? Wouldn't it eliminate free will? 
Yeah, and he talks about that. He says, he says Christianity would be nothing more than a compelled assent to a logical argument. It would be like being like, okay, you proved it. Yeah, a triangle has three sides that add, and the angles add up to 180 degrees. Kind of hard. You can't really. And what, what Lewis says is that why would God be interested in a faith like that? So what Christianity does, and again, like I, you guys know this already about me, I'm going to do my darndest to like, I am not a neutral player in this game, and I will never pretend to be. I am going to fight for your heart and soul because I think this is the truth. I think this is everything. I think there is nothing else that will ever say, this is worth giving your entire life for. This is worth losing everything. This is worth losing your friends. This is worth losing someone in your life you care a ton about. This is worth dying for. This is it. If there's anything in life that can speak to your heart, your mind, your soul, everything, this is it. And I am 100% convinced of that. Um, and I can try my darndest to convince you. Um, so, how, how do we, so what Lewis says is he says, what is God interested in? God, Christianity is not just for scientists and really smart people and philosophers. It's for my grandmother, who is actually quite brilliant, but in her time, right, my grandmother never went to college. Actually, that's not true. She went for like a year. But you know what? You get my point. Christianity is for someone who doesn't have a great intellect and for those who do. G.K. Chesterton, one of the greatest thinkers of the 19th century, Chesterton says, and actually he, he helped convert C.S. Lewis, even though Lewis never became Catholic, but C.S. Lewis says that G.K. Chesterton's book that's called um, The Everlasting Man is the greatest apologetic for Christianity that was ever written. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was not a Catholic. He converted. Um, anyway, but uh, what Chesterton says is he says, Catholicism is the only thing on earth that can reach someone who has no formal education and it can convert the greatest minds in our society. And so faith is more than just an intellectual. It can't contradict it, right? Because you got, so for instance, a great story was a couple years ago. I don't know how long, maybe five years ago. Darwin's like great, 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 whatever, however far that goes, granddaughter, converted to Catholicism. And there are all these jokes about, like, that's got to be an awkward dinner conversation. And I think she said it. She was interviewed, and she's, like, a professor at Oxford. And she was like, yeah, Thanksgiving was kind of awkward at the Darwin household. She was like, yeah, I became Catholic. I was like, oh, so how's Arsenal doing this year? You know? You know, Arsenal, a soccer team in London. Anyway, um, it has to speak to people with great minds. And it's also got to be God is God of everyone. And if this is true then it's true for people who don't live their lives that way, and it's true for people who do. Um, so we'll get to that. And we're going to talk about witnesses. By the way, so Pope Benedict, one last line on this. Pope Benedict says, outside of these, he says the two greatest witnesses to Jesus' divinity. The first one I think is kind of obvious are the saints. Right? Which, yeah, it doesn't, a saint can't prove to you Jesus is God. But it's going to challenge you. Right? Remember a couple weeks ago I talked about how if I went to Harvard and gave a pro-life speech, no one cares. Mother Teresa went in like the 80s or the 90s and got a standing ovation from a bunch of pro-choice atheist professors and students. 
Why? Because her faith is such a powerful witness. And there's something that speaks to us as human beings that says, well, my life isn't just about comfort or like more wealth across society. And Mother Teresa reminds us of that. When you see a, a tiny woman who's like three foot four, right, going into the gutters of Calcutta and picking up dying AIDS patients and loving them like they're God himself. You're like, wow, maybe there's more to life. You know? So anyway, saints are a great witness. The other one he says actually is Christian art. And he means that broadly, not just like paintings, but he means music. He means drama. He means the ability of Christianity to speak to the heart and soul of human beings. So what I can do in class, what I'm going to try to do, is I'm going to try and call, right, if we're in a court case, I'm going to call 20 witnesses. And you're not going to end up with a math equation where you can test it. And <clears throat> oh, I love this stuff. Why? Because God doesn't want you to just figure it out. He wants your heart. Right? He wants you to say, there's something, Jesus, in you. And I don't know everything. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, you know, faith doesn't mean you know everything. Faith means, it doesn't mean blind steps either. What faith means is, I don't know everything, but there is something about you that I can't deny. That speaks to my heart, my mind, right? That speaks to everything it means to be a human being. And I, Jesus, I might not be there yet, but I can take a step. And that's what I propose to you guys in this class. Faith means one step. If, and I started class with this this year, I think, um, if you come to RCIA and if you show up and you're like, I can't help you. There's, there's nothing I can do because faith engages your whole person. God, if you're, and, and so Pope Benedict says it this way, he says, he says, faith is never ever revealed to a permanently neutral observer. Like politicians, you know? You know the politicians who like wait and see which way the wind's blowing? And they're like, okay, I'm not going to take a stance. I'm going to take a stance. And whenever the wind blows that way, they're like, yep, going that way. And it blows this way, and they're going that way. You can't do that. If you, if you play that game with God, I promise you, you will never find him. Promise. Um, to be a Christian at some point, you don't have to do it blindly. That's what this class is for. But at some point, you've got to say, okay, and one last, I, I always say one last story. One last story. This is why I'm a priest, and my first step, I was, so I was raised Catholic, as you know. Um, great family, not particularly religious, except for my grandparents. My mom is very devout, she always was. But my dad's an atheist, I think, I don't know. I th he might be an agnostic. Um, but we grew up in a great family, I mean, it's great. We weren't like super religious, I wasn't praying a rosary at night. And when I was in college and I started asking adult questions, and not just feeling, but thinking. And I was like, is any of this true? I don't know. Is any of this true? Um, and what happened was I got to a place where I was like, I don't know, 
but I'm freaked out because this is making a lot of sense. And there was something tugging on my heart, and my, my first step, I get emotional with everything. Thanks, Mom. Um, I get emotional with everything. What happened, my first step, was when I was at the University of Colorado Boulder, the most chaste place on earth, right, where everyone waits till they're married. Um, no, not the case. And my first step, where I said, okay, Jesus, I don't know. I don't know if this is real. My first step was there were gorgeous women everywhere, everyone sleeping around, and I'm like hearing all this stuff from my Bible study, and it was like, it was hitting me right here and right here, and I was like, oh, and I took a step where I was like, I'm not going to pursue that kind of life. That's why I'm a priest. Change everything. Amen. <laughs> um, and that's, it doesn't have to be that big. That's what faith is. Faith is, I can take a step. I've got 20 other questions. I've got 50 other questions. But you know what, Jesus? Like, I don't know what's true, but I, there's something inside of me that my conscience that says, wow, like, I desire sex and I desire pleasure and partying and all these things. But somehow I'm like, there's, there's something in there that's just not quite right of just going after that right now. And then I see the witness of a God who loves me, who died on the cross for me. There's all these intellectual pieces that I never understood before that all of a sudden are making sense. The people I'm hanging out with are like, I'm just so impressed by them. And I was like, okay, I'll take a step. Um, this is why we never get anywhere. It's your fault. <laughs> okay, uh, three minute break, then we're back on, okay? And focus views to always say that Abraham Lincoln said that. But that's somewhat, I looked up society. That's probably it. It probably just got somehow misattributed. We're all good. I mean, we had to retire We're we long this weekend because people are Yeah, you're kicking me out. That's what I thought. You're going to put my bunch of matchsticks in there and pull my board out. That's what I live for. Where was your retreat? Where did you go for retreat? I was in the Black Forest, North Park Springs. Yeah. So a place called the Hideaway. Guided? Preach retreat, yeah. So, and it was. It was fine. I wasn't super worried. Uh, I, mean, so I kind of stopped going to conferences. But it was just going to be a tough read. The reason I was going to read all by itself, my friend is a deacon of the Spirit of And they were out Saturday. Uh, uh, and they were out Saturday. They got taken by the antibody. And then he had mass right on the sidewalk almost. And, you know, they actually came right over behind EJ during the Oh my gosh. Yeah, AJ's about two more years, yeah, about another 50 pounds. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> it just kind of like, oh, it helps. I just wanted to take it out, but I couldn't do that. Yeah. Wow. 
Uh, he says, oh, herbal tofu. No, it never happens. Not, never happens. I said, not never happens because it's freaking cold at night. It was cold. <laughs> I was amazed how many people we got. Really? Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, he had, and then challenge at the beginning by somebody on the right. We had finished station with the cross, and the guy goes, you know, he comes over without a mask, all this stuff, and goes, are you serious? You're liberal stuff. And the guy's like, this guy's like, you're finished without a mask. Yeah, totally. But he had it on both sides. That's that's a good sign, you know, getting it from both sides. Okay. Okay, we ready to keep moving? So here we go, like it or not. Let's keep going. Um, so what I want to move into now, we're going to talk about faith. If Maybe you're here tonight like, okay, FB, I'm not there yet. Honestly, if, depending on where your background is, you probably shouldn't be there yet with Jesus. We haven't really dove into that yet. Tonight we're going to start. Um, so if you look at your handouts, um, so the Bible, kind of that, that was a great question. Scripture is not a, what, what most Christians want, and a lot of people want, is they want the Bible to be like an owner's manual. You ever met someone who thinks that way or wants that to be the case? Yes, thank you. You were smirking. Um, yeah, like, and, some, and sometimes people will, like, you'll hear people say Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not true. <laughs> I have, and, and like Patrick and Seth and Anya can tell you, so this book, it's really a collection of 73 books. If you go to my house, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. Most of them are books about this book. They are by people who have spent their entire life studying this book, right? The people I read are fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Latin and they have read more than any human being should ever read in their entire life. And I spend my life doing this. This is not a basic instruction before living birth. That's not what it is. It's absolutely not. Um, so, the Bible we're going to get to is the Bible is, is a story. Um, scripture is a great story. It's much more than that. So the Bible, I think, I don't know if Father Mike talked about this. I imagine he did. The Bible has poetry, it has um, myths in it, it has history, it has all kinds of different things. But if you were going to put one kind of overarching category in the Bible, the Bible is the great story of humanity, God and the world. Okay, so, top of your hand now, the, you'll hear this guy quoted a lot in my class. N.T. Wright is maybe my favorite scripture scholar. He is, and I don't know how anyone knows this, but he's regularly kind of introduced as the top Bible scholar in the entire world. He taught at Oxford, Cambridge, 
He uh, taught at the University of St. Andrews. I think he still teaches there, but he might have retired. He is not Catholic. He's Anglican, which uh, is close to Catholicism in a lot of ways. He is very regularly regarded with suspicion in Protestant communities because he sounds very, very Catholic. Um, but again, it's kind of helpful for me to hear someone who's not Catholic uh, that will back up a lot of the things we're going to teach and that the church teaches. Okay, so talking about the Bible, N.T. Wright says this. This is a book on justification, which we'll get to that topic. He says, if you read your own question into the text and try to get an answer from it, when the text itself is talking about something else, right, you ever met someone who does this? Right, like people, have you been in a conversation and you're trying to tell someone something, but they want to talk about something else and they won't listen. This is what people do to the Bible all the time. And I'll give you an example in just a minute. Um, when the text itself is talking about something else, you run the risk not only of hearing only the echo of your own voice rather than the word of God, but also of missing the key point the text was actually eager to tell you. So here's, here's, a, here's a way to open this up. When I, we're going to walk through the great story of Scripture um, and what it's about. But here's, here's the easiest example of this, is when you guys hear the creation story in the Bible, what questions do you have about the creation story, or what questions do most people have about the creation story? Was the earth age of the earth? Okay, age of the earth. Okay, good. And what, what else? Spell that out. So was right, it really created in seven days? Was it created in seven days, right? What, there's an E word. How did God let them fail? Adam and Eve? Are you really asking me that question? Yes. No, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> well, we will get to that. We'll get to that. Yes, I actually, I actually will answer that question. Why did God let Adam and Eve fail? We will get to that. Um, but you're not allowed to change subjects. We've done that too much tonight. What else? The E word? Evolution. Evolution, right? So here's the thing, right? Um, what, what scholars refer to that as is anachronistic. So anachronistic, right? It's, I just wanted to impress you with one of my big words. So do you remember The Incredibles? Best Pixar movie ever? I know you love it, right? Come on, it's the best movie. Such a good movie. All right, and if you watch The Incredibles, they go to the island, and Mr. Incredible, right, like I think he's, he's, he's in a cave and he sees something carved into the wall. This is the name of like the island I think it is. Does anybody remember what it is? Yes. Yes. I love you. Kronos is the name of the island. So Kronos is a Greek word for time. And so something that is anachronistic is something that is against time or it negates time. So the example of this is when we read something backwards in history that wasn't really there. So an easy example is like in a movie sometimes, like an extra in a movie, they'll be filming something on like the Roman Empire and there's a guy with like an uh, like Apple Watch. I'm like pretty sure the Roman centurion didn't have Apple Watch, right? That's anachronistic. Asking questions of Genesis 
which was written about 4,000 years ago, is anachronistic. Darwin's theory of evolution, right, 19th century, is that right? Um, Moses, who's the traditional author of Genesis, doesn't know about evolution. He doesn't know about evolution. That question is a modern question put to an ancient text that doesn't care about evolution, doesn't know about evolution, has nothing to do with that question. And I'm going to show you that probably tonight now because I brought it up. Um, okay, one more quote from N.T. Wright, and then we'll do this. Um, so one more, N.T. Wright says, second quote, he says, For too long we have read scripture with 19th century eyes and 16th century questions. Here's what he means with that. 19th century eyes means the 19th century is talking about the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is like, think of just like modern science. Right? Like um, when, if, if Exodus says there were 10,000 people, the Enlightenment mind says, wait, was it 10,000 or was it 9,870? And we, the way the Enlightenment mind thinks is precision, exact, I want to know the exact number. That's the world you and I were raised in. That's not how the Bible writes. Ancient texts don't think that way. <clears throat> it doesn't mean they're not true, by the way. The other thing, and with 16th century questions, what happened in the 16th century? Reformation. The Reformation. What's the big question of the Reformation? That Martin, I mean, that's too broad of a question, but I'll throw it anyways. What's, it, what's the Reformation? When the Reformation, I can specify that. When the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, reads the Bible, what's the main question it asks? So cute when you don't answer my questions. The main question the Reformation asks is, how do I get saved? And it forces that question. And we'll talk about this. Those of you who come from Protestant backgrounds, we're going to talk about this in depth. That's the only question, oftentimes, that a lot of Protestants are interested in. That's it. It's the only thing you're allowed to ask about this collection of 73 books. What if there's 73 books? What if it's not talking about that? Okay, so you ready to jump into the story of Scripture? Show some enthusiasm. Come on. Yes. Okay, <clears throat> so... Uh, Let's start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. It's a quote sound of music. Um, okay, some of you know this. If you know it, you're not allowed to answer any of my questions. Okay, because I want you to get wrong answers. So the creation story is seven days, right? And now, like, you run into modern Christians and they're like, it was seven days. The Bible says so. Catholics don't believe that. At least they don't have to. And the greatest scholars in antiquity, for instance, St. Augustine, who is after Jesus and St. Paul, probably the most influential Christian in all of history. St. Augustine does not believe the world was created in seven days, and he said so in the fourth century. By the way, St. Augustine also knew the world was round, as did Plato and Aristotle and ancient educated people. They knew this because the earth casts a round shadow on the moon. They knew this. Anyway, I don't know why I said that. 
So, seven days, right? So what I want to show you is that the creation story, the way the Bible starts, the creation story is not about your questions. It's trying to tell you something else. And if we stopped and just listened instead of interrupting, we're going to hear something amazing. So, in Genesis 1.1, it says, uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and, I'm going to get this wrong, um, there's, there's formlessness and the void. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. The very first two verses of the Bible start with formlessness and void. Those are the problems of Genesis 1, 1, and 2. Okay, so here's my questions. What did God create first? Day one, what did God create? Heavens and the earth, that's a broad statement. Then the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. Then God said, right? So, on the, the first day, God creates light and darkness. And by the way, and here's, here's another way of saying, you know when I, I'm saying that like we don't listen to the text? Here, here's another one that, um, another way to say that is to say that we make category mistakes sometimes. So imagine like one of you guys comes to me and you're like, Father Brian, I'm in love. Can you tell me about the heart? And I'm like, Yes. Right? I know everything about the heart of my child. Right? And I'm like, come with me. And I hand you a cardiology book on the anatomy of the heart. Right? This is what we do with Genesis. Is we ask questions that are category mistakes. Okay? Okay, so God creates the light and the darkness. How about day two? Okay, good. Sky and sea. He separates the sky and the sea. By the way, and I don't know what Hebrew actually. My Hebrew doesn't exist. Father Mike. Do you know how Father Mike teaches Greek in the seminary? He told us. Do you know what he, did he tell you what he does to start class? This is so him. So, Mr. I don't need to wear shoes. When he goes to seminary, he brings a boom box. And, like, you know, these, these are all guys who are in, like, their fourth year of seminary. And they're like, all right, I gotta learn Greek. And he plays pump up music for a Greek class. He's like, all right, let's do some Greek. Come on, you know? And they get to fight about what music to play. I'm like, that's so him. Um, but in Hebrew, I don't know if it's the same, but in Greek, the word for sea and ocean is the same. That's how I got on that. Okay. Day three, anybody? Good. Dry land. Okay, day four. I'm just going to do them because we got to move. Day four is the sun and the moon. Day five is the um, birds and fish. 
Humanity. Okay, and then day seven, what happens on day seven? Tyrex. Okay, here's this is such a cool thing. When we ask 19th century questions of a 4,000 year old text, we're just not going to get good answers. Because Genesis isn't about, and what I say every year in RCIA, the Genesis creation story is not about how God created the world. It's not. It's about why God created the world. The Genesis text, let me say it again, is not about how God created the world. It's about why God created the world. And if you were Hebrew, you would know it. And here's, and here's, here's what I want to show you. What you might have noticed, and some of you I'm sure know, um, is that the days line up. So we start somewhere. First of all, the two problems were that the earth lacks form. Creation does not have form. The first three days create forms. These are the forums or the forms of existence. The second problem of Genesis 2, Genesis 1, verse 2, is that the earth is, the creation is empty, void. In the second set of three days, deal with that problem and they fill creation with abundance and with life. And what God, you know that Jack Johnson song Better Together? You want me to sing it for you? I think so. Uh, <laughs> one more beer. Um, <laughs> these things go together. The Genesis 1 is not about how God created the world. And by the way, this is not me just making this up. If you read the book of Psalms and the wisdom literature of, of Israel, it talks about this all over the place. And what it says is that God created a world that where things go together. We're better together. So the sun and the moon govern the light and the darkness. The sky and the sea are governed by birds and fish. Dry land is governed by animals, land animals, and humanity. Um, a couple of other things. After every day, day one, God separates the light from the darkness, and he looks on the light in the darkness and he says something. Do you know what he says? He says, It is good. Now, we don't really study humanities very much in the modern world. We've given up on them. Um, if you were a humanities major in college, you learn about reading authors and how to really read well. One of the cues, one of the key things to reading well is reading for repetition. So what happens in Genesis 1 is over and over again, God looks at what he created and he says, it is good. And you know, like, I, I can't think of an example, but you know, like your favorite song when you're in your car and you're like singing and 
then there's like the one chorus that's different. Do you know that? Ever have that happen? Just me. Okay. But it stands out, right? Like there's like when when everything's repeat, 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 and then there's one that's different. It highlights the one that's different. So God says, "It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good." And on day seven, you're expecting him to say what? It is good. On day seven, God says, it is very good. In Hebrew, the way you say that, by the way, and this is super cool. In Hebrew, the way you say it is very good is you say it is good, good. Um, we're going to talk about that in one second. Oh, can we just go like an extra hour tonight? This is like so fun. I love this stuff. I love scripture so much. So powerful. So God has all these things that go together, and he says, this is good. It's good. It is so good. And, and this, the wisdom literature teaches us that the Genesis story is not about how God created the world. It's about why. And God created the world for things that have communion. Right? Things that have communion. Maybe you read 7 or 3, but they don't really talk about that. Um, God loves things that go together. He loves communion. In the Catholic Church, we're going to talk about communion as a sacrament. Right? So we mean that as the Eucharist, the bread that becomes the flesh of Jesus Christ. But we also use that in a broad sense. And here's, here's something I just want to tell you. The deepest desire of every single person in this room and all of you watching at home, the deepest desire of every human heart is communion. Right? The deepest desire of my heart is not for a nice house. It's not for a comfortable wife. The deepest desire of my heart is that I would belong to others and they would belong to me in a deep way. You ever wonder why every human being in all of history has desired that? That's what Genesis is about. So, God goes through all of this. He says, it is good, it is good. He puts all these things that go together. And there's, there's two more repetitions I want to talk about. Um, but uh, on the seventh day, God says it is good, good. It's very good. I'm just going to put times two. Um, the reason that's way, that it's that way in Hebrew, by the way, is in Hebrew you don't have comparatives or superlatives for you grammar nerds out there. Comparative means um, Father Brian's good, Father Mike is better, um, Trevor the seminarian is the best. So the comparative is better, the superlative is the best, right? You have friends talking superlatives who are like, man, that was the greatest thing ever. And all they ever say is, that was the greatest, that was the best, that was the worst, right? They're really dramatic people. My friend Father John is this way. Um, in Hebrew, the way you do that is by repetition. So you say, if something's good, you say it's good. If you want to say, Father Brian's good, but Father Mike's better, you say, Father Brian's good, Father Mike is good, good. Father, or not Father yet, but Seminary and Trevor is Good, good, good. And if you're a Catholic, if you go to Mass, you now know why at Mass we say, holy, holy, holy. That's why. It's because in Isaiah chapter 6, and in Revelation, I can never remember the chapter in Revelation, but in Isaiah and in Revelation, when the angels are in front of the throne of God, they cry out, holy, holy, That's why. Okay, so two more repetitions. So why does God say good twice? Here's why. Because of all the things that go together on earth, 
the final culmination of all of this is the creation of Eve. And so when Adam and Eve, right, and by the way, right, why, there's all the jokes all the time, right, that every country song, but pretty much every song, right, if you do a survey of all music on the radio, why are 94% of songs about, you know, the girl or the guy you love? And today it's degenerated into baser things, but whatever. Why is it about that? Because that's why God created the world. And so God looks, everything else is good, but on the final day, he says it is very good. Isn't that beautiful? I freaking love that. One more repetition that happens. And if we, if we learn how to read texts, not imposing what we want to hear on them, but we listen, you notice things. So whenever God creates things on this side, and when he creates vegetation and plants and all kinds of things, there's this repetition. He says, so God created um, the fish of the sea, um, all the swarming things in the waters. And he says, according to their kind. And then God uh, creates the land animals. And he says, and so he made the land animals. And, you know, I, I, I can't quote it, but like, the chipmunks. And he doesn't say that. But all different things. And it says, according to their kind. And God made the birds of the air, according, each according to its kind. And it gets to Adam and Eve. And God says, let's make man. And you think he's going to say what? According to his kind. But he doesn't. He pauses there and everything stops. And he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Everything else is according, according to its kind. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. And what I would leave you with it and this is so cool about the Genesis story, is that um, the reason for that, Christians, now Jews didn't, would never read it this way, but there's a very odd thing. This is Genesis 1, 27. 26 and 27. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, there's a very odd thing. So for Jews, they didn't yet know that God is three persons and one God. They just think there was one God. And a very strange thing happens in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is God says he speaks in the plural. You know, like the queen, the royal we. You know, the queen gets up at Buckingham Palace and says, we have decided, and it just means she has decided, right? You know this. So it goes in the plural, and it says, let us, plural, make man according to our image, and our likeness. And here, this is so critical. This is so cool. I freaking love this. Um, God, so Jews, the greatest, um, the greatest thing, maybe, there's a couple weird things, but one of the greatest things that, that made Jews very different from everyone else in the ancient world is that if you go, and this happened, so I think it's like, uh, I didn't get my years wrong, but I think it's 70 B.C., uh, I want to say it's 70, but it might be in the 2nd century B.C., but whatever. The Roman general uh, Pompey walks, he's, they've conquered Israel, and he walks into the Jewish temple. And if, you're in, if we were ancient pagans, anywhere in the world you go, you walk into a temple, you walk in, remember the movie Hercules? 
I love that Disney movie. I don't know why, but I just do. <laughs> but um, he walks in, and if you walk into the Temple of Zeus, right, Hercules goes to see Zeus's dad. And in the Temple of Zeus, you walk in, it's this huge temple. And what do you always find at the center of a temple? A giant statue of the god who belongs in that temple. By the way, scripture scholars will tell you, when you study Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is about the building of a temple. When you read real scholars, not, you know, your average, like, I went online and found my daily devotional, which is very good. I don't mean to trash that. Those are good things. But when you study really serious scripture scholars, they're like, Genesis 1 is about the building of a temple. And when you go to a temple, what you find in the middle of a temple is the image of the God whose temple it is. Jews are forbidden from having images. Forbidden. Why? Because the only thing that images God is man and woman. Humanity is the image of the living God. And Christians looked back at this and they said, wow, isn't it interesting? It's plural. God says, let us make man, and again, the Hebrew word there does not mean male, it means humanity. So it's, it, it's um, the word for humanity is Adam. And the words for he or she or male and female in Hebrew are ish and isha. And only when you have both do you have an image of God. And Christians look at this and they say, you know why that is? It's because God's trinity. And it's not just because there's more than one person in God's identity. It's because, as 1 John says, God is love. Which is why every human being, at the bottom of their heart, desires to love others and to be loved. Okay, one last, one last thing for tonight, and we'll take questions if we have time. Last thing about the creation story, and this is so freaking cool. I'm going to say that a lot this year, but it is. Like, come on. How can you not be blown away by this? Okay, and you know how Roman numerals are numbers but also letters, right? This means yes. This means no. Roman numerals are numbers and letters, right? So in, um, in Hebrew, there's a similar thing with the number seven. So in Hebrew, sheva, b's and v's are kind of interchangeable in Hebrew. So sheva or sheva, it's, it's usually pronounced more like sheva. But anyway, um, that is the number seven. It also, in Hebrew, has another meaning. That word also means oath. And if, if you're a Bible person, if you want, if you want to like some evidence of that, I just challenge you to look at Genesis 21. And I'll look at the exact verse actually. In Genesis 21, um, Abraham makes a covenant. We're going to talk about that really quickly here. A covenant with someone named Abimelech, which is the name of your next dog. Um, 
So Abimelech and Abraham make a covenant about a well. And they, they come together in agreement that they, the well belongs to Abraham. They make peace about it. Um, so and it starts in verse 22. So, but down in verse 27, it says, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. Abraham said, Seven ewe lambs. There's that number. Abraham said, Seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set apart? He said, These seven, right? Seven's repeated. These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that you may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Bear Sheba. The word bear, it's like beer. Bear in Hebrew means well. And if you go to your Bible when you get home, your footnote there will say Bear Sheba can mean two things the well of seven. Or the well of the oath. Now here's where this comes together. Why did God create the world in seven days? Here's why. So covenant. If this doesn't blow your mind, like you got a hard heart, okay? Um, does anybody want to give me a, a quick shot in the dark? What's a covenant? An unbreakable bond. Okay, it has that aspect to it, but. Um, it's broader than that, I would say. It's you and I making an agreement versus me contracting with you. Okay. Or the penalty. You've read Scott Hahn. Can't answer any more questions. <laughs> That's right. So a covenant, he's got the right contract. So a covenant is an exchange of persons. Now in the ancient world, the Lincoln actually means things more broad than that. In the Bible and in Christian theology specifically, but Jewish as well. Covenant really means an exchange of persons. So a contract is an exchange of goods and services. I pay you however much you paint my house. That's a contract. There's an exchange of goods and services, right? A covenant is an exchange of persons. I get emotional. I always do at this point every year. So powerful. A covenant is when someone becomes family. That's what a covenant is. Marriage is, of course, the one we know best. Every covenant has parts of it that are contractual. There's a part of it, but it's more. It's more than that. It's not just goods and services. It's an exchange of people. So it makes a family. So um, the heart of any covenant the Jews, when they make a covenant with God in Exodus at Mount Sinai, the heart, the beating heart of the covenant is an exchange of oaths. So at Mount Sinai, God says to Israel, I will be your God. I will always be with you. And the Jews say, we will be your people. We will obey you. We will follow you. And in Exodus 24, they become a family. When you get married, if some of you already are, when you get married, the heart of your wedding is an exchange of oaths. 
promise to be faithful to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, to love you and to honor you all the days of my life. That's an oath. So in Hebrew, when you make a covenant, the, the word, if you're curious, the Hebrew word, I know a few Hebrew words. The Hebrew word for covenant is berith. <clears throat> um, Greek, it's diatheke, and I can't wait to talk about that. Well, I'll give you a sneak preview, right? Um, Greek is diatheke, which is the New Testament language, is Greek. Um, so when you, in Hebrew, though, when you make a covenant, when you make a family, you enter a marriage, the phrase that you use in Hebrew means to seven yourself. To make a covenant, to make family, is to seven yourself. Do you see why it's important for a Jew that God created the world in seven days? Seven, by the way, it's no accident. The seventh day for the Jews is not a day of work. It's a day of rest and worship of God that seals humanity's covenant with him. When a Jew reads that God created the world in seven days, they know, they're not, if they know what they're talking about, if they know the way that the Hebrew mind works in the ancient world, they're not asking questions about whether it was literally seven days. By the way, what St. Augustine says about this in the fourth century, it's probably actually the early fifth, he says, we know for a fact, right, that um, the sun is not created till the fourth day. So what does it mean to have three days before that? And he's like, obviously this is not a question about literal creation of the world. Obviously that's not what the text is about. Right? That's, that's the early 400s. St. Augustine talks about this. Um, so what it's about. It's about covenant. It's that God created the world not as a place that's meaningless, where so many people today, right, they go through life and they say, does my life have any meaning, meaning at all? It's just one thing after another, right? You, you eat, sleep, make a few bucks, and then you die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The biblical story is saying there was chaos, there was a void, and it was, um, or there was a formlessness and a void, and God brought a meaningful world where humanity is made for relationship and covenant. Last thing, here's your sneak preview for uh, three months from now. Um, so the Hebrew word for covenant, and there's actually I should make one for point first. Um, any guesses, and this is just obvious, a rhetorical question, any guesses why the Catholic Church has seven sacraments? To make a covenant with your bride is to seven yourself. Catholics in the New Testament teach that the church is the bride of Jesus Christ and that he gives himself to her in a sevenfold way. Amazing. Okay, so cliffhanger here. Not really. Jesus, that word covenant, St. Paul uses it all over the New Testament. He talks about the covenant all the time. The um, I'm going over just a touch, but humor me. Um, the we we talk about two parts of the Bible. What are the two main parts of the Bible? Two big divisions: Old Testament, New Testament. 
So, Testament, anybody know what language that's from? We do things just to confuse you in Christianity. Testament is a Latin word. Guess what it means? Can you guess this? Testament is a Latin word for covenant. So the Latin word is testamentum. So there is a covenant that made a family in the Old Testament. This is where we're going next week. We're talking all about this. In the Old Testament, God had a family with the Jewish people. And in the New Covenant, the New Testament, God opened that family to the entire world. We believe that that is called the Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. We believe it is for every language, man, woman, and child on the planet. It is for everyone. It is the New Covenant in the blood of Christ. St. Paul talks about the New Covenant constantly. Jesus only talks about the New Covenant once in the New Testament. Only once. You would think it would be a bunch. Such a big concept for Christians, right? We divided the Bible in half with the, that word. One time. Does anybody know what it is? Last Okay. You two, no more answering. <laughs> okay, that's right. The Last Supper. We're going to talk a lot about why Catholics believe that the, the Eucharist, the communion, the bread, we believe it is the true, flesh and, uh, the true flesh and the true blood of Jesus Christ. But this just be just, just a little teaser. Only once in Jesus' entire life does he talk about a new covenant. And it's at the moment he gave us his body and blood at the Last Supper. Oh, that class is going to be so cool. I say it every year. When we get there, which is a ways away right now, do not miss that class. Next week? It'll, no, not next week. It's going to be down the road. And it'll probably be like three classes. Okay, Steph, what do you got for us? And I'll try to warn you before yes. something else. Um, I just wanted to say that you should have had a, received an email from me with a link to the, all the videos on YouTube, so it should be a lot easier to watch back. Um, our, Anya and Amy have worked on putting that together, so that was really nice that they did that. Um, and then... Lastly, if you're not getting my emails, please comment right now on the Facebook and let me know and I'll message you to get it because that's the only way I'm keeping everyone up to date. And then other than that, I'll try to get all the handouts out, but mostly I don't get them until right before, so don't feel like you're left out with the handout. It's kind of just right when the class starts, I send it out. Um, and that's it. Okay, last reminder, next week we're going to talk about, I mean, the broad outline is going to be God created the world good, Sin makes that world still good, but there's some brokenness in it and profound brokenness. And how is God going to set things right? We're talking about that. Remind me next week. How did God let Adam and Eve fail? That's a really important question, and we'll talk about that next week if you guys don't make class go too far off the rails. Okay. Good night, everybody. Good to see you.